Welcome to Ira's Everything Bagel, where I talk with intriguing people about everything, their passions, pursuits, and points of view. There are childhoods that bring sweet memories, and there are childhoods best left forgotten. But there are also childhoods that, while they could be better left forgotten, can be best written about by a gifted author. My guest today is award-winning writer Brittany Means. She's author of Hell If We Don't Change Our Ways, a memoir published by Zibby Books and available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and all the usual places. For everything about Brittany, go to BrittanyMeans.com and you can follow her on Instagram and X, formerly known as Twitter. And Brittany, welcome to the show. Hi, Ira. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. The book is fascinating and your background is in writing, but your childhood background is not necessarily the best. Give us a little sense of it, would you, for our audience, both our listeners and our viewers? Yeah, of course. So my book is mostly about growing up homeless. My mom and I lived in a car when I was a kid. Um, we moved around a lot. She had an abusive boyfriend, um, Mark, in the book, who was looking for us. He was stalking her. And we stayed with family and friends sometimes. We stayed in shelters. We were mostly trying to stay on the move to keep away from him. One of the places we stayed was with my grandparents, who were deep Southern Pentecostals. And so the story is about going through all of that and then eventually moving in with a foster family until I left for college. And it's that narrative arc plus the themes of breaking out of the cycle of trauma and learning how to heal as an adult. Why did you decide, given your history, to write the book? I think writing is just how I've processed things. Like telling stories, is it feels natural. My mom really liked telling stories. She wrote poetry. My grandma wrote stories for me at bedtime. She wrote songs. So I, I think I came from a storytelling family, and that just made sense to me. That's how... I made sense of things and how I got them out of my head and onto a page, which was really helpful. And I also hoped that people would read about my experiences and find language for things in their own life. Do you see the writing of the book, and again, it's called Hell If We Don't Change Our Ways, a memoir. Do you think that the writing of the book acted in place of therapy, that it released a lot of your pent-up I would say anger, but I don't want to speculate. Anger, hurt, etc. Or is it maybe in tandem with therapy? And if you don't want to get specific about that, you don't have to. But it, I'm just curious in terms of whether you you use that cathartic writing as a total substitute or just a resolution of a lot of issues and also helping other people learn from what you went through. Yeah, uh, it was definitely in tandem. Yeah, I had some really difficult memories that played in my head a lot and I obsessed over and had nightmares about and all of that. So writing was a really great way of expressing it, but I also went to therapy while I was writing it and processed what I was writing. I think if I had just written it, it might not have been as therapeutic, could have been just as damaging, but mm -hmm. yeah, I had good people in my life and good therapy and took on a lot of like self-care practices and coping mechanisms. And yeah, I feel like I'm in a much better place now than I was before I wrote it. Did you share the book with your therapist? Um, I've gone through a few therapists since I started it. Um, I well, haven't. That I've alone, you'll be a bestseller if you share it with all the number of therapists you went through. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, probably, yeah. 
<laughs> Only kidding. <laughs> but, but what's interesting is it's classified as, or it's known as a memoir of self-preservation, which I think is a great way to, to name it if you had to name it something. Of all the different things you could talk about a memoir about, it is self-preservation. How did you develop a tougher hide than most folks have? How did you go through all of that and still be able to function today? You're obviously an award-winning writer. Your background, in fact, why don't you share a little bit first about your, your background in terms of writing, and then I'll restate the question. I probably should have asked that first, but occasionally <laughs> I get things better. I think I'm dyslexic in my interviewing, but okay, go ahead. <laughs> no, I, I love your interview style. It's kind of like how my brain works, just keep <laughs> around. Um, Thanks. Yeah, my writing background, I, like I said, came from a family talent or storytelling family. And yeah, when I was in elementary school, I wrote, we had like write a little poem and I was learning about rhyming and I wrote a poem that was like, I don't have a dad and I am sad. And I didn't really particularly feel that way, but I liked that I could rhyme and I showed it to my grandma who used to like look at all my homework and it made her cry. And I was like, hmm, writing can affect people. Yes. <laughs> and so I kept doing it. I mostly wrote poetry through high school and then I took a creative writing class with Kenneth Barrett, uh, who I owe a lot to because he took me aside one day and was like, you're a talented writer and you should like pay more attention to your writing and do it more. And it was the first time I thought of myself as being good at anything. Writing was just something I did. And um, yeah, that kind of opened a door in my brain and made me want to start pursuing it. And then in college, I had a creative writing major and I took like every class I could. I took fiction and nonfiction. I had a minor in screenwriting. I did poetry. And yeah, my nonfiction professor pulled me aside and was like, Brittany, you're, you're a writer. You need to keep going. <laughs> so I, I had these two people, I, I mean, more than them, but those were the two like touchstones who really got me going and made me feel like I was actually doing something instead of just putzing around in a notebook like I thought I was. <laughs> Well, also to the fact that yeah, we talked a bit earlier about writing it, getting your demons out in a way, or some of them at least, and mm -hmm. it being therapeutic. But you also have to have, before you even do that, and that's to my original question, which I transposed for you, but you were okay with it, so I'm glad. You have to have a tough skin, given your background, not in terms of college, but the childhood background that you write about. So you have to have a tough skin, and at the same time, you're obviously vulnerable and sensitive. So how do you have these combination of traits? Have you ever thought about that? Yeah. Uh, it's something I think about a lot because I sometimes it feels like survivor's guilt. There are still a lot of people in my life who are struggling with you know, poverty and addiction and breaking out of their own cycles of trauma. And it's hard for me to say, like, I deserve to get out and make a life for myself more than anyone else because I don't think I do. I think a lot of people want out as badly as I have and have as much ambition and aspiration and hope and the cards just don't fall right for them. I think one aspect of it is I have used escapism a lot in my life. So making up fantasies, writing stories, reading books, and for me, that's what my brain latched onto, and it's what worked for me. And I think for some people, 
the thing that helps them through a hard time is drinking or using drugs or self-harm or being very defensive with other people. And I think I'm just lucky that my brain aligned in a way that those weren't things that worked for me. And yeah, it's a hard thing to reckon with that I just got lucky. Well, you used, it seems you used fantasy as a tool, as a productive tool. A lot of people can use fantasy at the same, in the same way that people use drugs or alcohol in terms of distracting from reality. You may have used it for that too, but you also used it as a tool for obviously self-preservation and to be productive. It seems to work for you, which is great. So how did you, I, I want to go back to the question because I always remember the question I ask, even if, if people <laughs> don't remember it, I do, which is the part about the tough skin or the tough hide I used, I think, rather than, I should have said tough skin, but in other words, you, you have enough toughness about you that you're able to survive your childhood. And at the same time, I don't want to use the word prosper, but certainly being positive about what you're doing in an, an adult world today, going to college, winning awards for your writing, getting encouraged by various influential people to your life or in your life. How does that happen? Have you ever thought about that? Or have you ever wanted to write about your tough skin? Yeah, I, th I think... I think a big part of it is the people in my life. So my brother, Ben, he went through almost all the same stuff that I went through. And having someone there who I could talk to about it and who was willing to actually go back and talk about the hard stuff and grow with me and change with me. My best friend, Shirley, who's in the book, they're an amazing support. My partner, Jeff, I, I have so many wonderful people in my life. And I wish everyone had wonderful, supportive people who could be there when when you're just like, I'm done. I can't do it anymore. And then you have someone you love who talks to you or you know, sends you a box of pickles, which my friends just did for me to celebrate the book. Um, yeah, I, I think it's, I owe being here to the people in my life. I, I don't, I would not have made it if I had just been by myself. That's interesting. So it's a combination of having a, a tough skin, a determination, but also having people in your life. Very important because that's why I think some people don't make it and are having major problems because they don't have a support system. Mm -hmm. They can get some support through agencies, institutions, hotlines, etc. But it's not the same as having an ongoing relationship with people who can be supportive because it's very easy to get into a relationship or have friends who are toxic or let's say negative rather than toxic, yeah. negative, or just don't can't help you because they're struggling with their own stuff. So you were very fortunate in that sense. Let's get back to the pickles for just a second. Was there juice in the pickles or just pickles without juice when the box came? I'm just curious about that. Yeah, there are like jars of there was pickled okra, pickles, and some pickled green beans. Oh, nice combination. Um, yeah. I like pickled <laughs> I like pickled stuff and my friends were like we have to send you something, and you've already gotten a bouquet of flowers from your publisher, so <laughs> we know you're a pickle. You were right. Well, you were in a lifelong pickle in childhood, but then you got out of it uh, by uh, by writing <laughs> it. So, I, yeah. uh, can you share with us a couple of not necessarily horror stories, but just some interesting examples or vignettes from your life growing up that? led you to where you are now and, and writing this interesting book about your background, your 
your childhood and what it meant and how it also affects other people too. But I'll leave the floor to you. Yeah. I was thinking today about part of the book I wrote where my mom and my brother and I went to Mississippi to stay with some family there. And yeah, we went to Mississippi. We went to Arkansas. We just kind of took the train. We took Amtrak around the South. And it's one of my favorite memories because like we were in the car all the time and I I loved traveling. I loved just being on the move because it was what I was used to. Mm But the train felt like magic. I mean, we need a railway system in the U.S. that's more functional in general. Um, but yeah, my brother and I spent the whole train ride like pretending we were running super fast because you could see outside. So it looked like, you know, he could run a million miles an hour and like going between the train cars and like daring each other to stand with one foot on each side of the coupler where you can see down below the train. And and yeah, it was, it's one of those trips that someone asked me, like, why were you in Mississippi? And it was the first time I'd ever thought to consider that was just how things were. We were always somewhere unfamiliar with people we didn't know who were like, oh, I knew you when you were a baby, or I love you so much. I'm so glad you came to visit. And we had so many people in and out of our lives that we didn't really attach or I think to question. And so I still don't know really why we were in Mississippi and Arkansas, but we stayed on like an ostrich farm (laughs) where they're so aggressive and we didn't know that. We were so scared of them. And then there were a bunch of ostrich bones and the woman who ran the farm let me and my brother keep a femur. And I'm really surprised they let us take that on the train. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I would, I, I would challenge that. I would think if I were a conductor. But that's interesting because that is a metaphor that you're on an ostrich farm, because unlike the ostrich, you didn't keep your head in the sand. You actually (laughs) wrote about your experiences. I'm curious about the finances, because you you talk about being in the car, and that really was your home. And -hmm. and then, of course, you were on the train. So clearly, there's some money involved, or there's some money available for gas for the car, train tickets and groceries, et cetera. How did your mom work that out? So she worked jobs here and there, like part-time jobs. She stripped sometimes. And sometimes my grandparents would send money. Like I remember sitting outside a gas station waiting for the Western Union every now and again. So I think she really just scraped by with a lot of gigs and dancing and my grandparents when they were willing to send us money. And then when I was a little bit older, she had some cysts removed and had some health issues, and then she was on disability. So there was a little more regular income. But you were always on the move, though, in that sense. Yeah. Sounds like the military where you move, you're in one base, and then you move to another base where you're deployed somewhere else, and so there's constantly moving around. The only difference is, at least in, in the military, you actually have a room or a place to stay, and you're in the car a lot of the time, and occasionally a train. Did you ever fly during those days? No, I didn't fly until I was in grad school. Hmm, okay. Um, Yeah. Was that unusual for you at that point, age-wise, to all of a sudden be on an airplane, which you have never been on before? Yeah, it was really bizarre. I just never really had the opportunity or the money. And yeah, I took a trip from Iowa City to San Diego, and was yeah, the whole time I was just glued to the window. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love 
looking out while I'm flying. There's a lot about flying that's really frustrating at this point in my life. But at that time, the Iowa airport was so small. I was like, wow, flying is so nice. Why are people so cranky? Oh, yes. <laughs> now I know. <laughs> now you know. <laughs> Were you surprised when the, the um, flight attendant came by and offered a soda or some peanuts or something? Because that, oh, yeah. that would be new to you because you've never experienced it other than on the train, I suppose. Yeah, I was I was like, is this going to be charged to my car? Yeah, exactly. Do I have to pay for this? <laughs> what do I do with the trash? Yeah, the whole thing was very bizarre. The transition from your life growing up to the fact that you go to college, how did you handle that transition in a sense that that's a whole other world? And it's people by people, that sounds interesting, people by people or students who come from varied backgrounds. Maybe some similar to you, but mostly not because they're in college and it takes a certain amount of discipline and, and resources to get to college, even a public university or college. Were you at a disadvantage or did you feel you were at a disadvantage when you were going to college or did you just fit right in or maybe that's not the term fit right in, but did you, like a duck takes to water, were you that, were you that fascinated by it? You know, I love the school part mostly like taking all the creative writing classes and the math. I really like math. So I liked my classes. I was thinking um, more of the social aspect of college. Oh yeah. Yeah. More than the classes um, themselves. Yeah. Yeah. I think I just, I grew up weird and it has <laughs> made me weird. I have a lot. I'm like just a socially strange person. Well, was there anxiety, I guess, or discomfort when you got onto the campus and you started attending regularly? Were you disconnected from your fellow students, or did you, were you able to form friendships or at least acquaintances on campus? I struggled a little bit. I spent most of my time just alone, and I think a lot of that was just the social weirdness, and I was also in an abusive relationship at the time. So if I talked to anyone, I had to like explain it to my boyfriend in the book, Clay. And that I was just stressed all the time about like one, not fitting in, not really knowing how to be around people. And two, having someone I had to report to. But there were a lot of really wonderful people. Like I think my best friends in college were Shirley, who's in the book, Mm -hmm. uh, Sarah Hollowell, another amazing writer who also just had a book come out. Jackson, I met my partner Jeff there. I was really lucky that I went into writing because writing is full of weird people who are also <laughs> socially awkward. Um, so they didn't really care if we like went out to eat and I didn't say anything the whole time because I couldn't find out how to get into the conversation, but I still wanted to be around them. <laughs> yeah. Well, you were learning different ways to adapt based on your Childhood. So, yes, it's not exactly you weren't socializing that much sitting in the back of your car as a kid driving all the time, or you weren't driving, but riding it all the time. So, yeah, that makes sense. What do you want people to see in your book or take away from your book? And obviously, that differs from each reader, but you as an author probably have some ideas of what you'd like them to take away from reading your book. So, and if it's more than one or two things, that's fine. What, what would you say? you would like readers to take away from your book based on your writing it, not so much their reading it. They'll take away their own experiences once they finish. Yeah. I think one of the main things is I want people to understand the cycle of violence. 
I think because of the way we tell stories and the way plots are, we imagine that there are people in the world who are just trying to do good and they get hurt. And then there are people who hurt them. But I, I wanted to really illustrate the way that we all just start out as vulnerable people who want the best for our lives and the people in our lives. And sometimes things happen to us and we develop around those defensive mechanisms and we get reactive and we hurt other people. And then those people carry on those same things and hurt other people. And I think I want people to come away understanding that, I don't know, just the very basic concept that hurt people hurt people. And we are all capable of doing that. And if we start thinking of people who abuse kids or hurt their family members or act like patriarchal tyrants as like uniquely evil, then we we lose the ability to see when we might be falling into those same patterns. Do you think that the larger world can have an impact on those kinds of people? And what I mean by that is you're in an abusive relationship, but clearly when you're out in the wider world, including the college campus, you see how other people relate, you see how other people think and act. Would that influence you? And do you think it would influence other people who are in the similar situations? Because I'm always amazed, I guess to my point, I'm always amazed at people that grow up in certain areas where they repeat those patterns that you talked about they have access to media, and media shows a wider world. And then they, if they get out of their neighborhood and they go to other worlds, so to speak, they are exposed to all kinds of ways of living so they can see that maybe theirs is not the most healthy. But do you, yeah. Yeah, I guess um, I guess what I'm asking is, why isn't that more of an issue where they have an impact, the wider world doesn't have an impact on these cycles and these patterns of behavior? I think a lot of it is... Well, at least in an abusive relationship, a lot of the pattern of abuse is about isolation. Like anyone who is a support becomes an enemy or anyone who makes you doubt your relationship or think about what's wrong in the relationship. Like if I spent too much time with a certain friend and was like talking to them too much, my ex would say like, I think they're a bad influence or you're ignoring me for them. And I think that kind of thing makes you feel like, like for me, it made me feel like I was in my own small little world and that the rules were different there. So even though I could understand when people were like, he shouldn't yell at you and your partner should never make you feel scared and that kind of thing, it it felt like those things applied to other people because I was in my own private universe where where everything was like set to what he had slowly cornered me into and it was similar with like my mom we had a really us against the world relationship because she told me like everyone's our enemy and we only have each other and so when I looked at other people and the models of healthy relationships on like tv or out in public or whatever they just didn't feel like they could apply to me yeah but eventually it did yeah. apply to you. So that that you're hopefully more the rule than the exception. I'm, I'm afraid that you're more the exception than the rule in those cases. But that's, I think, to the point of your book, that you want people to read the book and get a sense that you can break through and live yes. a, a, a normal, healthy life and have 
normal, healthy relationships. Mm-hmm. And you provide the path, the guide, I guess, the map to how to do that in your own case, but it can still be applied in, to the larger population of people that may have suffered similar situations. Do you Have you thought about forming a network of people that suffered what you suffered in your childhood and maybe through interaction helping some of these other people? I've attended like a NAMI group in the past and I I like that kind of thing. Yeah, I I've bonded with people here and there who, you know, have had abusive relationships or complicated relationships with their parents. I find it feels really good to be around other people and be able to talk with people who understand the complexities of it. I don't know that I've I've done too much work in terms of like forming a group or anything, but I like the groups that I've been to and I really like having people in my life who understand. Well, I think that you set a good example, obviously, by writing the book. One last quick question is what what do you look to the future for in terms of more books, for example, or Obviously, you're going to always write, but are you looking to write more books and along similar lines or a whole different approach? What's your future look like for you? Because you're a young woman, so you have plenty of time to create a lot of material. Yeah. I'm working on my second book right now, which is more about like health and mental health and how it manifests in religious communities. And I'm also working on a TV script with one of my best friends, Rachel. It's about vampires. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, I'm really excited about that. I would I would love to do more TV well, writing. Great. Vampires are a very neglected part of the population, so I think it's good <laughs> that you're writing a script about it. Well, I, think, <laughs> I think that's a great way to leave it. My guest has been award-winning writer Brittany Means. She's author of Hell If We Don't Change Our Ways, a memoir published by Zippy Books. It's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and all the usual places. And for everything about Brittany, and that's with two Ts, go to Brittany Means. Com, and you could follow her on Instagram and X, formerly known as Twitter. Brittany, thanks for being on the show. Yeah, thank you so much, Ira. And join us every Thursday for a new schmear on Ira's Everything Bagel. <laughs>